Bibles, if you would look with me to Matthew chapter number 10 as we launch off once again from this study in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, we're going to read just one down to verse number 3. The Bible tells us here in Matthew 10, and when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these, the first Simon, it's called Peter and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And last Sunday, we looked at Philip and Bartholomew. And today, we're going to be looking at Thomas and Matthew, the publican. Father, we thank you again for the joy of gathering. Bless now the study and reading of your word. In Christ's name, and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, highlighted something that became significant to him and something he noticed that the Lord was doing in gathering together the body of Christ, which was also true of the twelve disciples. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse 26, Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen. And he goes on to say in verse 29 that no flesh should glory in his presence And he concludes in verse 31 that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. God has so chosen to call, to save, and to redeem a body of believers that in the world's eyes would be not the most significant people. They would just be normal, some of them considered to be base, looked down upon, nothing significant in them. So that the work that is accomplished would all be given to God's glory and not our glory. And so the 12 disciples are really a small microcosm of that macrocosm of the church. That picture in a small form. The 12 disciples up to this point were just normal everyday guys. What's interesting when Jesus called these 12 men to do the greatest of works the launching of the church, the most impactful, the, the, the greatest event that ever happened in, in, in human history and in in, in salvation to man was proclaimed through, through 12 very ordinary men. Jesus, in calling these 12 guys, bypassed the elite. He bypassed the religious establishment of that day. He didn't call anybody out of the institutions He just called 12 ordinary guys who were hardworking men who, when Jesus called, were willing to drop everything in their life to follow him. And so this morning, that reality continues as we examine the lives of Thomas and Matthew. And first, I want to look at this man named Thomas. Now, Thomas's name is mentioned 12 times in 12 verses in the New Testament. The name Thomas was Aramaic for twin, the Greek rendering of Thomas is Didymus, so you'll see him as Thomas or Didymus in the gospel records. It is likely that he 
had fishing experience since in John 21 he was listed with the seven of the disciples who went fishing. Uh, Also the name Didymus or Thomas means twin and uh, they have suspected that he could have been the twin brother of Matthew because they're always listed together, though we are not certain of that. And we don't know where Thomas was born or where he lived, but if he was the twin brother of Matthew and he was a fisherman, very likely he was in Galilee and very likely in the city of Capernaum where Matthew worked. And whenever you hear the name Thomas, we always identify him with another word, doubting Thomas, right? That's how we have typically known him. But Thomas, I think, has gotten a bad rap, and so today I want to perhaps give a clearer and fuller light upon this man named Thomas. If you have your Bibles there, turn to John chapter 11, John chapter number 11, and I want to show you uh, one of the places that Thomas and his character come to light. At this time, Jesus is in Judea in John 11, which is the southern region, down where John the Baptist was baptizing. This is about three weeks before Jesus Christ would be crucified. Mary and Martha sinned for Jesus because their brother Lazarus is sick, and Jesus was very close to this family. His disciples and he had often stayed at their residence because they were about two miles outside of Jerusalem in a town called Bethany, uh, which was a nice place of recluse for them to be able to relax. Jesus is at a place uh, below Jordan, uh, known as uh, is about 18 miles away from this town of Bethany outside of Jerusalem. And so John 11 verse 1, it says this, now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and Martha, and her sister Martha, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And I want you to notice how they phrase their question here in verse 3. It says, Now his sister sent unto him, they come to Jesus, saying, they sent a, a messenger to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Isn't that an interesting way of phrasing it? Not he who loves you is sick. But he who you love is sick. In other words, they base their request on God's love for them, not their love for God, which can be very fickle. You know, when we go to God in prayer, we need to ask God, not based on how much we love Him, because that's probably not enough. We need to base our requests on how much, God, you have chosen to love me by your grace. Does that make sense? Now, in verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. That is a fascinating response. He tells his disciples and the messenger that there is something bigger at work than just Lazarus' sickness. There's more going on. God is at work, and his glory is going to be displayed through this situation. Friend, you need to understand there's sometimes that pain happens in life that we do not know how to categorize, to understand, but you need to know that God knows and He cares. So many Christians misunderstand pains in life. They think if something bad happens to them or they get sick, that, that they've done something wrong and, and, and God must be against me. In this situation, we see very clearly this sickness is something God was going to work in and through, not something that God was against Him for. Now, what is interesting in verse 3, 
there is a there is a difference in verse 3 and verse 5 in the use of the word love. In the English, we just write the word love. So if you just read the English, there's going to be something you miss. In verse number 3 of John chapter 11, he says, He whom thou lovest, and the choice of the word love in the Greek is the word phileo. Phileo is like where we get the word Philadelphia from. It's the city of brotherly love, and it's the idea of brotherly love. It's the idea of somebody that you're really fond of, somebody you really care about. And so they say, Jesus, he whom you really like, you really care about, you're really fond of is sick. Could be another way you could say it. But notice how the Bible defines Jesus' love for them in verse 5. It says, now Jesus, and it doesn't use the word phileo, it uses the word Agape or agape, how people used to say, like to say it. Now, Jesus agaped Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What that means is agape love isn't I'm really fond of you and I like you. It's I love you and am willing to die for you. This is God love. This is, this is, this is there are no boundaries. There's no extent that I would go to sacrifice to benefit you. In other words, they did not understand how much Jesus really loved them. They're basing their request on a phileo love, and the Bible says, no, Jesus actually loves you to death. Do you understand that today? Do you understand when you go to God that He loves you more than you think He does? How do you know that? Isn't love proven through actions and not just words? And has Jesus proven it with some actions? Right? Now, according to verse 6, Jesus waits two more days where he is. And then he says in verse number 7, Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. Now, the problem was, this was about, again, three weeks prior to Jesus' crucifixion. The last time he was up in that region around Jerusalem, around Bethany, uh, the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. In the previous chapter, it says in John 10, 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Verse 39 of John 10, therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hands. Last time he's in that area, they are trying to kill him. The leadership are trying to kill him of the religious establishment. Now that is how Christ ended up in southern Galilee, about 20 miles away. Now how did his disciples respond? Look at verse number 8. John eleven eight. 8, his disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? I mean, we know Lazarus is sick, we know Mary and Martha, this is a wonderful family, but this is life-threatening. Like, this is, this is dangerous. And he says in verse number 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? And if any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of the world. He's talking about twelve hours of daylight. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth because there is no light in him. You know what Jesus is saying there in verse 9 through 11? As long as he's in the daylight of living in the Father's will and ministry, he was safe. But the night was coming when he would die and the, 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 he called the prince of darkness, Satan would come and his hour of darkness would come. But in the day, no one could take his life. Death and life are a divine prerogative. We don't live worried about every day, am I going to live or die? That's in the hand of God. Praise God for that. That's why I was so disappointed to see so many Christians living like practical atheists when it came to COVID. Really. 
You think, you think your life is, is up to you, uh, uh, whether, whether you're going to live or die based on, on, on whether you wear a mask or not? Listen, I, as I said, don't walk out in front of a semi-truck and don't lick handrails. But if you don't live in a foolish way, uh, your life is in the hand of God. Jesus, they're like, Jesus, you go up there, you're going to die. It's like, really? You think my life is up to them? What kind of God do you serve? You must serve a little bitty God. He must be a little bitty God. Because as long as I'm in the Father's will, no one will kill me. I lay my life down when I choose to lay it down, Jesus said. How many Christians today? I, I, I think it's in the churches that shut down over COVID-19 needed to close down. And by the way, Satan doesn't close churches. Jesus does that. Read Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Amen. He was the one closing the doors. There's never a church that Satan closes. Jesus is a church closer. And when they close, that's what needed to happen. Now John chapter 11, verse 11, it says, These things said he, and after that he saith unto him, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he's asleep, he's going to be all right. We don't need to go up there and put our life on the line. I understand the Father's sovereign. I understand that uh, life and death are divine prerogative. But still, it's a little safer being 20 miles away. But look at verse 13. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought he spoke about him taking rest in sleep. Did you notice how Jesus talks about death versus how the world talks about death? Did you see that? I mean, death really can throw us for a loop, but Jesus is like, you know, he's actually just, it's like he's sleeping. The Bible says to be absent from the body is immediately to be present with the Lord. If you're saved, the moment you die, you awaken in his presence. Is that good news? The worst thing that happens to us brings the best thing. We need to quit looking at death through the eyes of the world. Look at it through the eyes of Christ. Verse 14, then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Let me talk in your language. He's dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you might believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. And so Jesus goes there. And notice who speaks up at the, when, when he says, let's go. Notice who speaks up when, when this life-threatening mission is at hand. John eleven sixteen. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You know, Thomas, the one called the doubter, is here Thomas the courageous. And let me say this. Thomas was not only courageous, but there's a, there's, there's a pretty heavy layer of pessimism there, wasn't there? I'm sure if you asked Thomas, are you a pessimist? He would say, no, I'm just a realist. You know anybody like that? Their cup's always half full. You know, man, it's a beautiful day. Yeah, but it's a little windy. You know, man, isn't the sunshine great? Yeah, but there's going to be clouds later. You know? Boy, we've gotten a good battle. You know, we finally got some rain. Yeah, man, my grass has grown way too fast. It's just always something negative. Anybody know somebody like that? <laughs> I, I, I just don't like pessimism. It's just not, I'm not wired that way. I don't like that. People that are negative, I just, I, I tend to drift further away from them. Like, I'm not going to go out to lunch with them on a weekly basis because I like to feel good about life. Amen. So... If you are pessimistic, here's one of the guys God used. God uses pessimistic guys. He's like, we're going to, we're going to you know, up to Judea and we're definitely going to die. I mean, it's, it's over, folks. You know, go ahead and write your final letters. 
I mean, death is there, it's certain, but let's go and die with him. And you know, the courage of a pessimist is greater than the courage of an optimist. Because an optimist would say, we'll go to Judea and we'll, we, we may make it through this. You know, they, they, they see some light at the end of the tumble, tunnel. But to, to Thomas, he's like, oh, we're definitely dead, but we'll still go. I mean, this is, this is real courage here. But, but I want you to see this. For Thomas, he, was, he so loved Christ, was so committed to Christ, that he would rather die than be separated from Jesus. He would rather give up his life than to be distanced from Jesus by 20 miles. Now turn to John 14. Here again we see this kind of a spirit of loyalty in Thomas. Jesus had just got done saying in John chapter 14 how he's going to, this is the day before Jesus dies now in John 14. He said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Or he said, I'm sorry, in John 14, he said, I'm going to go to heaven and prepare a place for you. And, and, and I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself. And in verse 4 he says, Whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And, and look who speaks up in verse 5. Thomas saith to him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? If you're going somewhere, we need to know exactly where you're going, and we need to know how to get there, because Thomas could not stand the thought of being distanced from Christ. Wherever Jesus was, Thomas had to be there. This was a committed follower of Christ. He's the first one to call out for the exact information. I need to know where you're going. And Jesus was telling him, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back. He says, Lord, we need to know exactly how this is going to work. And look what Jesus says in verse 6. Jesus said to him, you, you don't know how to get to heaven where I am? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You believe that today? So... So in response, the Lord gives one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture on the exclusivity of Christ. If you want to go to heaven, it's not through Allah. Muhammad did not even know if he was going to heaven. I've read it in the Quran. Muhammad didn't know if he was going to heaven. Does anybody want to follow a faith where the founder doesn't even know if he's going to get there? And by the way, I could never be a Muslim because... Muhammad consummated a marriage with a nine-year-old. Anybody want to follow that religion? I've studied these religions more than most in those religions. No way. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus wasn't like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make it to heaven, but you guys want to follow me? Right? Praise God. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place, and I know I'll, bring, I'll come back and take you, and if you want to go, it's only through me. I, I can follow him. Now turn to John 20, one last place. John 20. After Jesus was crucified, you just need to understand, to the loving, loyal, devoted Thomas, this threw him into a great state of despair. In fact, he even becomes isolated from the other disciples. He gets alone, he gets depressed. The Bible tells us in John 20 that Jesus comes and reveals his resurrected glory to the ten. In John 20, look at verse 19. It says, Then the same day at evening, this is the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, that's why we worship God on Sunday. It says, When the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith to them, Peace be unto you. Now that would be a little bit startling, right? 
They're sitting together like real scared of the Jews. All of a sudden, Jesus is in the room. And we had said, so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Uh, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, peace be unto you as my father has sent me, even so send I you. And he he shares this glorious truth. Now, notice, notice what verse 24 says. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. You know why Thomas isn't with them? Because Thomas is isolating himself. He's in such a state of despair, he can't even be around people. You ever known somebody like that? Maybe you've been there. Where you're under such agony of soul that you just, you just need to be alone. I don't want to be around anybody. Listen, if you have a loved one die, the best thing you can do is get around church people. Get to church. Get around your family. Get around loved ones. Get around people that will speak love and truth into your life. Isolation never helps. I've seen it after burying over 150 people. Listen, I'm around death more than I would say most anybody in this room. And I see how people recover and how they get through it. You isolate yourself, get involved in some game system, get involved by yourself, get involved in some bottle or drug or alcohol or just isolate yourself. I can tell you, you're going to drag that pain for the rest of your life. But if you can cry and heal and talk those things out and work through it, and it's painful to work that stuff out, just like rehabbing an arm or a knee that you had replacement on. And just like it's painful to do that, but when you do that, heal the right way, you'll be able to recover the right way. And so Thomas is isolating. And the other disciples with joy come and find Thomas. Look what they do in verse 25. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. They come and tell him. They're excited. But Thomas was heartbroken. He had followed Jesus for three years and he is devastated by this. Notice how Thomas responds. But he said unto them, except I see in his hand the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. You need to understand, that is the statement of a faith that has been wounded by not understanding when life presents you with physical pain, suffering, and trials. When God cannot be fully understood and the things of God cannot be fully grasped. That is the response of a faith that allows the pain of life to define it rather than the words of God to define it. Did you hear me? He allowed suffering to define his view of God instead of the words Jesus told him. Perhaps that's you today. You face pain and suffering, hardship in your life, and it caused you not to believe in God, not to trust God. Now you're allowing pain to give you your worldview. That's the lens through which you see truth. It's through pain. Pain becomes how you dictate truth in life. Pain becomes how you treat people in life. Pain is how you respond to people in life. So now you're controlled by what you hate. You hated the pain, and the pain owns you. You think that's wise? Same thing people do when they don't forgive someone. Somebody hurts them in life, somebody wrongs them in life, and their whole life is defined by what that person did to them. And their hatred for that person spills out into every other relationship. That person then has more control over them than the Lord Jesus Christ does. Is that a wise way to live? No, it's not. That's, how, that's, a, that's a very blinded way to live. Perhaps that's you today. Listen, don't allow pain to define you. Let God's truth to define you. But you just can't get past the pain. Perhaps one point in your life you really had believed, but now you've shut down on the inside. I can tell you, 
Satan is going to deceive you in those things if you allow that. Here Thomas expressed the same hurt. He's like, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. We must remember God's ways are higher than our ways, greater than our ways. And we must remember this. No matter how much pain you and I have gone through in life, no one has gone through more than Jesus Christ. Let me remind you, he died at 33 for us, suffering more than any man. You must make the words of Christ more trustworthy than the pains of life. Define life, trials, suffering, hardships by Christ's words and not our pain. So what happens to Thomas? Look at verse 26. And after eight days... I mean, there's a lot involved in eight days. Eight days, Thomas has not seen Jesus. Eight days, he's still doubting, still hurting. His life has just been turned on its head. After eight days, again, his disciples were within. But look what happened. And Thomas with them. You know, he's still doubting. He's still hurting. But he's now with them, isn't he? He's not isolating anymore. He's he's come around them. They've pulled him into the group. They had evangelized him with the hope of Christ. Then look at verse 26. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Why do we worship on Sunday? Because Jesus resurrected on Sunday, didn't show up again until the following Sunday. And then the first day of the week they would worship. The only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament is guess which one? The command to meet on the Sabbath, which is on a Saturday. It's never repeated in the New Testament. I could give you another dozen reasons, but let's just keep going on. Now, who's the first person Jesus speaks to? Look at verse 27. Then saith he to who? To Thomas. Thomas. What's he say to Thomas? What's he got? Why is Jesus going to talk to Thomas? Well, look what he says. He says, uh, Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. Now, why did Jesus say that? Huh? You're, you're, you're preaching now. I'm, I'm your student, right? Now, now why, did, why did he say that? Because Thomas is like, unless, I won't believe, unless I put my finger into his hand and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, go ahead. Go ahead and do it, Thomas. Is this what you need? Is this what you need? Are my words not enough? Living with you for three years, that's not enough, right? So I need to do more for you? Because I'm not trustworthy, am I, Thomas? My word's not enough, right, Thomas? So you need to see this. You need to see this. Go ahead. You know what Thomas did? Thomas didn't put his finger up. And he didn't put his hand into his side. He fell on his knees before Christ. Look what happens in verse 27. And Jesus says, be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. You know what? He realized he was dead wrong. He had been defining Jesus. He had been defining reality by the pain of his life, by not understanding the words of Christ that Jesus had already told them he was going to go up and crucified, rise again three days later. He told them that at least six times in the New Testament. They couldn't get it. Thomas, you think Jesus doesn't love you? This was for you. You don't understand the pain, but but there's more at work than your pain. There's something greater. The glory of God's being put on display through this pain in such a way that wouldn't happen if you didn't go through them. Listen to me. Who would not be here today if it wasn't for the pains that you went through in life? 
Raise your hand real high. Raise them real high. And look around the room, everybody. Take a minute. Look around this room. Do you think God does not use pain to awaken us to His reality? Do we like the pain? No. But are we thankful for the lessons it taught us? Yes. How frail would we be if we didn't have those pains? How frail would we be? God protected us. Because if He's going to protect us from the big pains, He'd protect us from all pain. But good news is, one day He's going to deliver us from all that stuff. Amen? There'll be no more death, sorrow, suffering, all of that. So He says, Thomas, stop disbelieving. And you know, does Jesus know what we say behind closed doors? Yeah. Thomas found out real quick. You know what the first thing is when Jesus comes into the room? The first thing He does is he destroys unbelief. He had to rid the room of unbelief. The only place unbelief was found in the heart of Thomas, and he came in and dispelled it. Jesus says to him in verse 29, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are they who have not seen me and believe. Blessed are they who have not seen me and believe. Friend, that is you and I. We have not seen Christ, but we believe. Do you believe, or are you... Allowing doubt, some pain, some misunderstanding to keep you from God. And so again, I invite you today and challenge you, put more faith in Christ and His word of truth than your doubts and misunderstanding. You know, Thomas was faithful to the end. Acts chapter 1 tells us Thomas was with the disciples in the upper room just prior to Pentecost. History records, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, that Thomas went on to preach the gospel in Persia, Partha, and India. And it was in Kalamina, India. And this is very interesting that there was an angry group of pagans that took spears and pierced them through the body of Thomas. The same one who said, unless I put my hand into the spear that was in his side, had spears thrust through him before they cast him into the flames of an oven. Today, Thomas has been reunited with his Lord, and this faithful servant deserves much more than the name Doubting Thomas, doesn't he? I would call him Devoted Thomas. He so loved Christ that being separated caused him such heartache. I would call him the Loyal Pessimist and the Loving Pessimist. So that's Thomas. Now let's look lastly at Matthew the Publican. Matthew had two names in Scripture, Levi, which is his Jewish name, which means joined, and Matthew, which means a gift of God. You need to know this, of the 12 disciples, Matthew is the most unexpected of the 12. Because Matthew was greedy, sinful tax collector. He surrendered his life to Christ and and God used him in such a dynamic way. So let me give you a little bit of background about Matthew's line of work. Rome was the dominant power of the day. They had conquered Jerusalem and all those regions. One of the ways they oppressed those under their rule was they taxed them. They had two types of taxes, toll tax, which was like our income tax today. And then they had a ground tax, which was like property and land tax. Herod Antipatus, which was the Jewish king of the time, set over Jerusalem by Rome, uh, was a corrupt man. And he would hire, he, he would sell tax franchises to the highest bidder. And he would hire people to take taxes upon the people. These local tax gatherers were called publicans. The Jews were seeking to be liberated from Rome at this time. So to be a tax gatherer of the Jewish people as a Jew meant you were taking money from the Jewish people and working for Rome. You were a traitor to your own people. 
Therefore, the publicans were the most despised people in town. They were also hated because they were corrupt. Rome would set a certain tax amount that they were supposed to raise. Anything above that, uh, they would be able to keep. So they taxed you on everything. And then if you couldn't pay it, they would, char- they would lend you money and charge you up to a 50% rate uh, of interest. And, and, and if you didn't pay up, they had thugs they would hire to enforce this upon you. I mean, this, this, was a, this was the lowest class of society the publicans were. They were socially rejected. Nobody had relationships with the, with the publicans. They hated them. Uh, you, even if, if you got around a public and you had to repent because they said you become sinful just by being a, a closely associated with them physically. They were saw as criminals. They were always classified with harlots and publicans and sinners. They were not allowed even to give testimony in court because everyone saw them as a liar. They were so socially rejected that the publicans were not even allowed going to the synagogues. That's like not even allowing them to come to church. And so the, the, since they were never in the synagogue, the only time they could ever hear Jesus preach was if he preached outside of the synagogue, which Jesus did that all over Capernaum and all over Galilee. This is how Matthew would have heard of Jesus. You know, what's interesting, Matthew was from the city of Capernaum where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And what's interesting is Matthew's gospel, the clearest presentation of the Sermon on the Mount is recorded from Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. We preached on those chapters for over a year. And Jesus Christ uh, preached that in the town where Matthew was from. And, and very likely that's why it's so, so vivid and so clear is because Matthew would have been there very likely. And so... Matthew must have heard Jesus, saw his miracles. Undoubtedly, he was torn over what his sinful lifestyle was after hearing the purity of the word of Christ. Matthew chapter 9, if you go back to Matthew 9, this is the record of Jesus' encounter with this man named Levi or Matthew. It says, And Jesus passed forth from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, where that's his tax desk. Now, Edersheim, which was a... Uh, a Jewish scholar said there were two categories for publicans. There were what was known, and I've shared this with you in the past, but there were what were known as gabai, and there were what were known as mochas. The gabai were publicans who collected the general taxes. They collected land, property taxes, income taxes, stuff like that. And then there were the mochas. The mochas were the ones that just put it to you. They would tax every wheel, every axle on your cart, every animal, every product you bought and sold, everything imaginable. I mean, they just, they just worked you over. There were two types of mochas. There were what were known as the great mochas and then the little mochas. The great mochas didn't want to be in the public eye because they knew how much they were hated. So they, they would hire out little mochas to do the physical work for them and have the tax desks. And so the, the great mochas kind of wanted to keep themselves from that public disdain. So the goodbye were hated. The great mochas were even more hated, but the most hated people in the towns of Jerusalem and in the Judea cities were the little mochas. Matthew was a little mochas. That's why he's sitting at the desk. He's, you need to understand this. He is the most hated man in Capernaum. He's, he's at the lowest rung on the social ladder. No one could stand this guy. So Jesus saw this publican named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. He's on duty. Clearly, he had been impressed with Jesus and his message and his miracles. Jesus had just healed a paralyzed man in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 through 8, and he forgave the man's sins. Matthew must have heard that. Matthew, who was 
very likely just tormented by his life of sin after hearing Christ. But you need to understand, Matthew must have thought, there's no way I could be forgiven by Jesus. I mean, I can't even go into the synagogues. I've been kicked out and excommunicated by the religious people. But Jesus forgave this paralyzed man, but, but he would never forgive me. And perhaps all of this is just running in, through Matthew's mind, tormenting him. And all of a sudden he looks up and Jesus is standing in front of his desk. It says in Matthew 9 verse 9, Jesus passed forth, came from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And, and I'm sure Matthew thought, I'm about to get lit up. I mean, Jesus is going to preach to me, right? I mean, he, he knows he's just... In, 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 but instead, it says he saith to him, follow me. I can tell you, every person in town would have done the same thing as what Luke 18 said. You're going to be to, to hang out with a publican. Remember when, remember when the rich man Lazarus did that? They're like, what are you doing? What, what are you, or Zacchaeus, I'm sorry, when, when Zacchaeus came to the house of Zacchaeus. And, 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 and look what he does. Look what the man does. And he, Matthew, and he arose and followed him. How do I know that Matthew was thinking all of this? Because at the moment that Jesus asked him to follow, Matthew was willing to lay down his job, leave his work, give up everything, and follow Jesus. You say, but that's what the disciples, the other disciples did. You need to understand this. Matthew puts it in a very humble means. It says in Matthew 9.9, he arose and followed him. But in Luke 5.28, Luke writes, and he left all, rose up and followed him. Matthew puts it in a humble way, but Luke's like, no, you need to understand, he left everything. Matthew left it all. You see, when, when Peter, Andrew, James, and John left their fishing nets and left fishing, they could always go back to fishing. But when you left a tax job as a publican, you could not return. They would have somebody in that seat the next day. When he walked away, he was done. This isn't like dropping your nets to follow Jesus. This is like burning your nets. Matthew went all in for Christ. His heart had to be so soft and willing to follow Jesus wherever he would go. You know, this, this greedy, deceitful, manipulating tax collector who hung out with prostitutes and harlots became one of the 12 disciples, and Jesus chose him to be the first one to write the gospel. Matthew is on the pages of Scripture. The greatest of the sinners in Capernaum writes the first book of the New Testament. Is that crazy? Are you awake? Is that crazy? That's crazy. That's like the guy in town that would be the worst man in Xenia that everybody hates ends up writing the first book of the Bible. What in the world? Like that guy's supposed to be in prison the rest of his life. People want to kill that guy. I mean, this is, this is incredible grace. This is like Jesus using the demoniac of Gadara to become the first missionary. This is like Jesus going to Samaria and the woman at the well, he saves and uses her to go bring the city to himself. This is like Jesus going and taking the Christian killer in Acts chapter number 10 and turning him into an, a preacher of the gospel. Acts 11, the apostle Paul. This is incredible power of God, incredible grace. Matthew was a full, fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. He was also very humble. You know, he went from being a hard and cold lover of money to being a humble servant of Christ. What's interesting, nowhere in the New Testament do you ever see him speaking. He's the opposite of Peter. Even in his own gospel, he only mentions himself twice in 28 chapters, and he always does it in the third person. 
And, I, and, and you know all the other Gospels, when it refers to the 12 disciples, they never call him Matthew the publican. But in Matthew, he says, I want you to know, my name is Matthew the publican. The, every, all, everybody else is like, no, 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 don't take that name. They didn't use it, but Matthew uses it. What's also interesting is when you read through the other records in the Gospels, when it says like all the 12 disciples, he always puts Thomas, they always put Matthew in front of Thomas, like he was the more prominent of the two. But here when you get to Matthew's gospel and it lists the 12 in Matthew chapter 10, he puts Thomas before himself. This, this is just such a humble guy. Just, just loving Christ behind the scenes. He also had an evangelistic heart. You know what he does right after this? Look at verse 10 in Matthew 9. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in his house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. You know what he does? He goes out and he literally invites all of his publicans and prostitute friends to come to church. Luke 5.29 puts it this way, And Levi made a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with him. For him to have a great company and a great feast, must, he must have had a big house. This guy who's, who's, whose life was defined by sin, he wanted every one of his friends to know about Jesus Christ. Jesus so impacted him. He's like, I want all of you guys to know what Jesus can do for you too. And, 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 and the people were upset. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? I mean, this is, this is terrible. And Jesus said, Don't you know that they that are whole don't need a physician, but they that are sick? But go and learn what this meaneth. I would have mercy and not sacrifice. For I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let me tell you something. The only way you're ever going to get to heaven is when you understand you're so sinful, you could never make it there on your own. You fall down before Christ and confess He is Lord, and you need His mercy. Anybody thankful for that mercy today? And you know, Matthew became a lover of the Word. John's gospel quotes, cites, or alludes to the Old Testament 49 times. Luke's gospel quotes, cites, or alludes to the Old Testament 68 times. Mark's gospel quotes, cites, or alludes to the Old Testament 39 times. Matthew's gospel quotes, cites, or alludes to the Old Testament 102 times. No one had the Old Testament, the scriptures of that day, flowing through their writing more than Matthew. He became a great lover of the Word of God. And the pen that used to write down unjust things about money became the pen that God would use to write down the Scriptures. You know, Matthew left everything behind but his pen. And God used him to be a great, great man of God. And so Matthew, lastly, was faithful to the end. History records he became a faithful preacher in Judea. He also went into other countries where he ended up laying his life down for the gospel in Ethiopia, where he died from a sword wound. You need to understand here today that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past, no matter how big the record is on your life, Jesus is calling you today to surrender to him, to give up your life so that you could have his life work through you. Are you saved today? If you stood before God and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Are you ready to stand before Jesus Christ? In conclusion, Thomas needs to be remembered much more than a doubter. He was the loving pessimist, the devoted and loyal disciple who wanted to be with Jesus wherever Jesus went, even if it cost him his life. But he also struggled with suffering. And Thomas's downfall at that point in his life was because he began to define life 
by his pain instead of by the words of Christ. And when Jesus showed up, Jesus corrected him on that truth. And Thomas' life was transformed from being an internal agony to having internal joy and living a life that really made a difference, that was glorifying to God and incredibly impactful to others. Listen, friend, don't let pain define your view of God. Let Christ's words define that. And secondly, Matthew the publican, the worst man in town, gets saved and goes all in for Jesus. I don't know where your life is today, but if you're not saved, you need to come today and be saved. I'm going to be standing down in the front. We'll have men and women down here as well. But you could come today and say, you know what? I need to give my life to Jesus Christ. If I stood before God, I don't know if heaven would be my home. But today, you could get that settled. There's nothing more important in your eternity. Where you spend forever is at issue here. Have you given your life to Jesus? I'm not talking about praying and saying, Jesus, forgive me my sins. I'm talking about surrendering your life to Jesus as Lord, being saved, and seeing him transform you from the inside out. If you're saved, you live differently. You live a different life. We heard those testimonies today, haven't we? Like God will change your life. And today, why don't you let him change your life? Let's all stand this morning. Father, we are so thankful today for your word. God, I pray that as you look across this sanctuary and you walk among us with your spirit, that God, I pray that if anyone has allowed pain in life to begin to define reality for them, that they would see today that that is a lie, that they're being deceived, that God, that your word would begin, would become their foundation and not some hurt in life. They would begin to define you and truth and reality by the word of God and not by their sufferings. God, I pray right now that if anyone is hurting, that they would find that peace in Christ. Draw them, God. Dispel the unbelief. Quench that doubt. And Lord, today I pray if anyone is, feels they've gone too far, that you would never forgive and they understand today they need to be saved, that today would be their day of salvation. Today we're reminded of the great grace of God as we examine Matthew's life. What an incredible display of your glory that you have chosen the weak things of the world and the things that are despised so that no flesh would glory in your presence. God, today we glory in Christ and be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen.